Hello and welcome to the Kendall Podcast, brought to you by Kendall Outreach. In this program, all the alternatives to aging are bad. A conversation with R. Knight Steel, M.D., recorded Monday, November 9th, 2009, at the American Association of Homes and Services for the Aging Conference in Chicago. In this presentation, Dr. Steele, a physician, researcher, and former chief of the Health of the Elderly program for the World Health Organization, addresses the big-picture health issues of our time and their impact on aging services organizations. I'm your host, Steve Lubetkin. Dr. R. Knight Steele's extensive biography and a PDF file of his presentation slides from this program can be found at kendalloutreach.org. And now let's go to the lectern for the presentation by Dr. R. Knight Steele. So what I thought we'd do this morning is talk a little bit about aging. And I would begin by asking what aging is all about. And it's interesting, you know, if you go to a cocktail party and you say to somebody, I'm older, they go, oh, yeah, oh. And then if you say to somebody, but you look so young, oh, really, isn't that great? But you know, aging is just a biological process. It's not a disease. And we have a cat that I particularly love. I don't like cats usually. But when I was in southern Thailand, here we go. Here's a real story for you. I was in southern Thailand because my older daughter was a Henry Luce scholar there. I was asleep. I was exhausted. I was asleep on the floor. And in from the street walks this cat, a street cat goes to sleep on my chest. Well, I mean, we are connected. So I brought the, I didn't bring the cat back, but my daughter brought the cat back. And now the cat is older because the cat also has aged, just like I have and just like all of you are. And as we will see, it's a biological process. So the human animal, they have a lifespan of about 120 years. We're just animals, you know. And this is not life expectancy, this is lifespan. This is what aging is. It gives you a span that you live through. And if you get a disease that shortens it, that alters your life expectancy, but not your lifespan. And this is work from Miller at the University of Michigan and all that showed that cancer and heart disease would each extend, if you could cure them, would each extend life expectancy by about 3%. And if the top 10 or 15 causes of death were eliminated, the human life expectancy would increase by about 20 years. This is Jesse Roth's work from the National Institute on Aging. But there'd be no change in your lifespan. And I don't know if you saw, but a few weeks ago, there was an article that said, because of changes in our life and the way we're beginning to think about prevention, that in fact, babies born today in the developed world might indeed have a lifespan of 100 years, life expectancy of that long at least. Now, the only way that aging has been shown to be manipulated to date is by means of caloric restriction. And this was done many, many years ago. And if you take mice or rats and you put them in a cage and you restrict their diet dramatically, you can in fact increase their lifespan. And there is a study going on now at the NIA using animals a little closer to us, uh, and these studies uh, suggest that, in fact, you might be able to do that. But I don't think most of us would really like to restrict our diets by 40 to 50 percent. And by the way, it just really wouldn't be quite comfortable, I don't think. I bring to your attention the fact, however, that the Nobel Prizes this year, this year, in 
basic science, actually, were uh, directed to the uh, enzyme, I'm sorry, to the uh, telomerase, which in fact does affect aging at the cellular level. So in fact, this may change. So perhaps aging or changes associated with it can be manipulated by consuming something. And I bring that to you because I think it's not out of the question that in very short order, there will be things that you'll go to the store to buy, or in fact, your doctor may or may not prescribe, that conceivably could alter the biological process of aging. The first few will probably be supplements, one probably being a substance from red wine. In fact, that's probably a good idea. I was talking to an ethicist a moment ago here, and this raises ethical questions too, I think, because it says, Will everyone be taking this substance to alter your lifespan? And would you start taking it perhaps age 30? Or should you take it younger? Or should you wait till you get to be my age and start to take it? And will there be more cancers? Because if you think about it, cancer may be the opposite of aging. So if you age well and you get, uh, and you, uh, or you don't age well, maybe in fact you'll have more cancers because cancer may be cells that go wild and keep multiplying? Will it alter one organ system and not others? And I've often wondered, would it be possible that there'll be zillions of people on dialysis because it altered everything except your kidneys? Your kidneys continue to age, but the rest of you didn't. And will it be develop, available only in the developed world? I don't know the answers to any of those. So I thought I'd move on to the second question because I don't know any of those answers. <laughs> So I raised the question about what is really going to be important about aging to your work and your profession. And as you see it, you'll see, I think, that aging is very important. Now, most of your residents are elderly, and therefore some appreciation of the physiologic changes associated with aging, I believe, is important for you to understand as you plan for the future of your organizations, the services you're going to provide, and what, in fact, you will do not only now, but in the future. And there will be some very, very brief studies I'll refer to. These came out of Johns Hopkins, the National Institute of Aging, and they've been around for a long time. So we talk a little bit about the physiology of aging, and you didn't realize you were going to have this. And there will be a quiz right afterward, and I can uh, tell you the answers are B, D, D, B, A, something like that anyway. But if you think about aging and physiology, you realize that the resting cardiac output is unchanged until just before 80 in women and about age 80 in men. That's resting. And the maximum cardiac output in both sexes is lower, as is the maximum heart rate. And therefore, when you think about it and you design exercise programs for your facilities, you have to think about it in accordance with the physiologic changes associated with cardiac output. There's marked decreased baroreceptor sensitivity, and that means when I stand up at my age, my blood pressure doesn't suddenly become, it doesn't uh, compensate immediately for my standing up nearly as quickly as it does when my children stand up or my grandchildren stand up. So therefore, there's a greater fall risk in older people just because of the change in this baroreceptor sensitivity. There's an elevated systolic blood pressure, 
And that's been shown for a long time that the systolic blood pressure tends to rise with age. And therefore, lots of the people you'll be caring for, lots of them, are taking antihypertensives. Now, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but when I was a professor of medicine in Boston, we used to take care of lots and lots and lots of older people. And a lot of them had elevated systolic blood pressure. That's the number on top. And we used to give the number that was acceptable as 100 plus your age. Can you believe that? So if, in fact, medicine's really in advance, let me tell you. So if you think about that, if you're 80 and somebody had a systolic blood pressure of 180, we said, well, that's okay because they're 80. It turns out they're not. And there was a wonderful study done a number of years ago called the SHEP study that showed that systolic hypertension is a big predictor of stroke and problems, and therefore you'll lower it. But you will find in your institutions, if you have an institution, and you were to look at the number of people on antihypertensives, I promise you there'll be large, large numbers. Now in the lung, <coughs> excuse me, there's changes with respect to ciliary action. So your little cilia in there that <coughs> clear you, just what I'm trying to do now, that, that was planned, you know that. That in fact, the cilia get this stuff up in fact, they're just not as good as they used to be. And what that means is that when older people <clears throat> aspirate a little bit, <clears throat> they, in fact, are more likely to get pneumonia. So you'll see a lot of pneumonia as you have an older population. There's less muscle mass and less bone mass with age. And one can look at this, and you can see that muscle mass actually declines with age. And it's very clear. And, uh, it's quite striking. You can actually measure it. And therefore, if you fall and you're older, first of all, you're more likely to fall. And if you do fall, you're more likely to have a significant injury. There's less dark adaptation with age. And that means, for example, if you're driving along and suddenly you come into a tunnel, when you hit that tunnel on a sunny day, it's black. And your eye doesn't dilate nearly as quickly as it did many, many years ago. So in fact, with dark adaptation problems, again, if somebody walks into a very dark room suddenly, they can't see quite as quickly as they could when they were children. There's less high-frequency perception. This is very important. I have some hearing deficits myself. I can tell you that hearing my grandchildren, I have th two daughters and three granddaughters. Oh my gosh, am I a feminist? I would tell you, I would tell you that when they talk and they get excited and the pitch of their voice goes up, I have trouble hearing it. So high frequency is, tends to be lost as we get older. And I would remind you that you don't shout necessarily, when somebody has problem with high-frequency loss, what you do is you pitch your voice down, you enunciate, you face them, you do not have a bright light behind you, and you speak slowly. Well, there's less smell and taste sensitivity as you get older. So therefore, the meals that you prepare in your institutions are going to have to be adjusted in order to take into account this uh, change in with respect to age. Kidney function declines strikingly with age. So if you take a normal man, let's say, age 20, 
with normal kidney function, they will clear about 20 to 22 teaspoons of their plasma every minute of their life. I mean, it's really extraordinary when you think about it. Now, when they get to be 80, they'll probably clear about half of that. Not because they have kidney disease, it's because they're older. So your people that work there, who in fact take care of people, will in fact have to be aware of the fact that with a little less kidney function, and maybe quite a bit less kidney function, they will have to be aware that maybe their people are going to become more dehydrated if it's very hot out and you don't have an air conditioning on, and beware of the fact that the doses of certain drugs may have to be changed that are cleared by the kidney. I remind you again, we're talking about aging, not about disease. So what is the purpose of medical care? And I just would talk to you about this. You know, it's interesting, I have a lot of medical students I've seen in my life, and I always say to them, you know, look, I hate to tell you this, but you have a very, very, very serious disease. And fortunately for you, I have a pill in this hand that will cure you. And then I have a pill in this hand. It won't cure you, but it'll take away all your symptoms. And which pill would you like? And they all say, oh, I want the pill that will cure me. I said, oh, you know, I forgot to tell you that half the people that take this pill become hemiplegic. They have a massive stroke. This pill over here that takes care of all your symptoms and makes you feel fine has no side effects at all. You sure you want this pill that will cure you? And the message being that the purpose of medicine is to maximize your function and quality of life for the longest period of time. And I think that's what you all uh, believe is also your purpose. Well, as we talk about aging, we've done the physiology now. Let's just talk a little bit about what the future will be like. And I'm reminded that most of us plan for the past. And are there any economists in the room? Gosh, I hope not, because I'm about to say something, okay? I can't resist it. You know, economists can always explain the past extremely well. <laughs> I won't go there any further. But because of changes in life expectancy and a lower birth rate, there'll be more and more elders. And we're going to talk about that at the very end. And presently, about 13% of the U.S. population is 65 or over. And because of changes in the role of women, there'll be more and more need for services. As I told you, in all seriousness, I'm an ardent feminist. Both of my daughters have PhDs. They're fabulous. They have careers. I would tell you that, in fact, the role of women is changing. And that role is such that the care of older people will be a more community kind of uh, uh, care. Because of changes around the world, the world is changing dramatically. We'll come to that at the end, too. I respectfully remind you that in 1950, the life expectancy in China was 37 years. And in the year 2000, it was 70 years. And by the way, one out of every five people on the face of the earth is in China. And because of changes in the healthcare system, even as of two days ago, and because of changes in the retirement system, these may be interlocked in a way, and I'm a believer that we really need a new field called geroeconomics. I remind you that prevention is critically important. You know, if you go to a cocktail party and you say, 
And what do you do, doctor? Oh, I transplant hearts. I have a heart. I take it out of this person. I put it in. Oh, gosh, that's fantastic. Fantastic. But if you say to them, you know, I give flu shots, they go, oh, God, you know, you can do that at Walmart. But in fact, giving flu shots statistically may be more valuable, in fact, I believe it is, than doing heart transplants. So prevention is really important. And in your facilities and where you think about it, think about the things that you could do about heart transplants. I'm sorry about prevention. So immunizations are important, and you can go to the CDC website, and they will give you the latest update. Delirium prevention is important. There's a wonderful woman that's up at the facility where John Morris is, Sharon Inouye, and they have a help program, Hospital Elder Life Program, and that says older people who get admitted to an acute care facility, a lot of them become delirious. They're not demented, they just become delirious, and that's a huge problem. Increases your risk of falling and all kinds of other problems. The increased fall risk needs to be in, uh, addressed and included in the assessment of your persons and your environment. So always ask to somebody who's coming to your facility, have you fallen in the last six months? Because if you have, that's a very good predictor that you're going to fall again. And your facility should have grab bars in the bathroom. Your facility should not have scatter rugs that slide away. The lighting should be adequate. Alcohol. Now, this is the only thing men are better at than women. Let me tell you, this is better. We're better. Here we go. In men, older men, we can take two drinks as we get older. Women tolerate one. So you have to be a little careful about that. There's a change in metabolism of alcohol with age. And therefore, in your facility, when you serve drinks, I have no problem with it at all. Remember this. What will be the future of healthcare in the United States? The future of healthcare is going to change. I remind you of a wonderful study that was done by Bruce Leff at Johns Hopkins, who's related to Interi now. And Bruce showed that he could care for many problems at home as well, if not better, with better patient satisfaction, cheaper, and better outcomes than in the acute care facility. The acute care facility will no longer be the cathedral of the healthcare system. The acute care facility is going to have to be much tighter connected with you. And if you have a facility that's assisted living and all, that kind of facility will have many more medical interventions taken care of in that facility rather than in the acute care facility next door, a thing called a hospital. Will there be a medical home for all your residents? All of your residents do need a medical home. They need a place that at least some doctor knows all of the medicines being given, the total care of this person. Well, it was my good fortune to be in Geneva. This is a totally different subject now. In Geneva, in the early part of the 1990s. And that was when Interi began. But the history of Interi is important because in the 1980s, there was generally poor care in skilled nursing facilities, and a standardized resident assessment instrument, the RI, was designed and mandated by the federal government. And it did lead to improved care, and a woman who works with Interi, Catherine Hawes, testified before Congress to that effect. So what is the RI? And for those of you who don't know, it is a standardized assessment tool and studied for validity and reliability and contains various domains such as communication, nutrition, continence, function, 
medications, and many more. And the nursing homes now uh, have uh, rye introduced, and it's required. It was mandated by the federal government, and it has contributed to better quality of care. So there are people who are deaf, who are now recognized as being deaf, and are not presumed to be demented because they're sitting in a nursing home. And it allowed the development of quality indicators. It uh, supported the idea of consumer report cards and MDS data is increasingly being used for payment, to target and focus surveys, for eligibility, and it's going to be used for a lot more in the future. And in 1992, Naoki Kagami, a lovely, lovely person from Tokyo, came to visit me, and Interi was birthed. And this idea did not flow from me, but it flowed from Brant Fries and John Morris, those two guys, and others. The idea that we could, take inter we could take this resin assessment instrument and we could use it around the world. So the mission of Interi was very simple, to improve the care of elders everywhere in the world. And we had a little plan. And the plan was we recruit leaders in geriatrics from all nations. We redesign this instrument for all levels of care. We translate the instruments into multiple languages, and we collect and analyze data from everywhere. So with respect to the mission, we did have to get it out there, and we did write articles, and we said, gosh, wouldn't it be good to take care of older people properly? And when you think about it, they're no longer going to become the minority that they once were. And these are some of the people in Interi. This is a short list. There's quite a, bit, quite a few more now. And this is what the map looks like. Again, not as up-to-date as Brant's map that he sent me uh, uh, for this talk, but in fact, it's pretty close. And you'll see we have many, many nations from all over the world. And we got India recently. Last February, we were in India. And we uh, met with the Minister of Health and Research there. And we recruited India into Interi. We designed a whole bunch of tools that are all interrelated. These are the Interi screeners and home care and assisted living and all those tools. And this is what they look like. And I was told that everybody here speaks Korean. So this is what it is in Korean. You don't speak Korean, everybody? Oh, OK. Well, this is what the front cover looks like. Most of it is in Korean still, but this is what it looks like in English. And I, I do refer to this as government ugly. I do think they're kind of ugly to look at. But in fact, they do collect wonderful, wonderful data. And these are the, some of the states in the United States that use our instruments. And this is what it's like in Canada. Here are many of the states use many of our instruments in Canada, many of the provinces. This is what it's like in Europe. And this is what it's like in Asia. And even this is not accurate anymore because I see India has no little uh, insignias on it. But in fact, uh, they will be there very shortly. So I'll just tell you about two or three studies that we've done to try to show you what, in fact, you can get out of this process of collecting data and putting it all together. And this was an ad hoc study, and this was done by Ander and colleagues, and was published a couple of years ago. And this study across Europe actually showed that home care services based on case management approach 
reduced the risk of institutionalization and lowered cost. And the editorial comment that I add on to that is this is the kind of essential information that you're going to need for retirement communities, skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities, all kinds of independent living. So we do need to take care of somebody and have person-specific, not site-specific care. And this was a wonderful study. This was done by Roberta Bernabai and others, showing that the management of pain in elderly persons in, uh, with cancer, that this, uh, these people, in fact, who complained of pain daily in our nursing homes, 26% of them didn't even get an aspirin tablet. So therefore, we can do something about the quality of care, too, if we collect this data and give it to governments and give it to appropriate organizations. And that study actually made uh, the front page of the New York Times, which I was unable to get. This is the next page of the New York Times. And it made an editorial in the Wall Street Journal. And perhaps most importantly, it made a Doonesbury cartoon. So this is Inter-Rye in 2009. There are about 40 fellows. They change. And an additional 20 or so members. We have about 13 million completed assessments from all over the world. And we published some 500-plus papers. We've been hosted in Iceland, <coughs> Israel, Sweden. We were hosted where the Nobel Prizes are given out in Sweden by the mayor of Stockholm. And for further information, there's a wonderful website, www.interi.org, and I encourage you to take a look at it. So how did collage come about? Collage came about because we said, gosh, the art and science of healthy aging was created to be a joint venture between Kendall Outreach, which is an offshoot of Kendall Corporation, the Institute for Aging Research, which is up at Harvard and part of what Hebrew Senior Life, and, uh, and InterI. So these three organizations got together and we set up a collage. And we use a customized suite of standardized instruments, just like InterI used. And we use them as part of InterI, too, in other places if necessary. And we can use them in congregate senior housing sites, apartment dwellings, senior service agencies everywhere. And they allow you to do two things, basically. To see if you're providing quality care that maximizes the function and quality of life of your residents. And remember, that's the whole point of care. That's the point of medicine. And to design ways to improve their care and their quality and what I didn't put on here is to plan for the future as well. So, for example, Collage's community health assessment covers these 13 areas, cognition and communication and vision and other areas, <coughs> and will help you see what, in fact, you do well, what you could do a little better, and what, in fact, you need to do to plan for tomorrow. That's what this does. It does provide, it allows you to provide first-class care and an elegant service package at an individual level and at a group level. You can plan for the future. You can know the quality of your care. And when you say you're an excellent service, for the first time maybe, it will be based on scientifically grounded assessment tools. And it will allow you to design federal and state regulations, not just follow them. You will help design them that you can, in fact, influence the whole world. 
So the future. I close with this thought. <coughs> this is Kevin Kinsella's work. Kevin Kinsella is a demographer who's now at the National Institute on Aging. I met him for the first time in India when I gave a keynote address in India years ago uh, when I was representing the WHO and the UN. And he wrote, he does wonderful things. This booklet that you can buy, it's not even a booklet, it's about 200 pages. You can get it for nothing by just going onto the website, look up Kevin Kinsella. The numbers are just incredible. In less than 10 years, the number of people aged 65 and older will be greater than the number of children under the age of five for the first time in history. This is truly a first. And I respectfully remind you, <coughs> excuse me, that 65 is an arbitrary age. It has no basis in physiology. It was an age chosen by politicians to be the age of retirement. Doesn't mean anything otherwise. And the older population is increasing by a modest 870,000 people every month. And within 10 years, as the baby boomers get older, it will increase by 1.9 million people per month. So I close with the thought that all the alternatives to aging are bad. And I thank you very, very much for coming today. Okay. Thank you so much, Knight. Can you take some questions? Do we have some questions in the audience? Uh, what is your perception about retirement? And, and it, it seems in some ways that it's a, certainly the age is an artificial age. Uh, and what is, when you look at aging and the whole process, where it is a retirement make sense or not? Yeah, I think retirement is a very personal thing. I think it really depends upon what you want. I am going through this myself at this very, very moment. So I'm very sympathetic to the question. I believe there are a couple of points to be made very obviously. One, I think we need a concept of geroeconomics. And I just wrote a paper, it's about to come out on this, because in fact, retirement relates to both money and health. And we have to merge in a sense, I'm not saying we have to merge at the federal level, Social Security and Medicare, but we do have to merge the concept that I'm likely to need more money later in life than I am at this moment, and I'm 69 years of age. And that's because, in fact, as I get older, I will have more deficits and require more health care. I think you should always do something that you find fulfilling. And when you are 20 years old and you have to live in a certain way and you have to make a certain amount of money, maybe we still have to make a certain amount of money. But it's also nice to do something that you find fulfilling. And as my wife will tell you, all I've ever wanted to do, including during my retirement, is change the world. I have a strategy question. Um, I bridge between senior living and the acute care world. And um, what I've tried to do or tried to see is placing community-based services or case management, healthcare case management, into the community. And there's so much resistance on the acute care side for understanding that their ER visits will go down, we're working on diagnostic, preventative, et cetera. And, and so it, I found it frustrating because that coordinator of service is not a reimbursable expense. So um, trying to do that in a community-based model 
wonder if you had some advice for that and how to deal with some of the acute care providers to get them to open their eyes a little more. That's a very complicated question. Just to rephrase it, I think, would be the classic acute care facility views itself in isolation from the rest of the healthcare world. And I've always given the example of <clears throat> standing on the doorstep of the emergency room. And you're standing there and you have crushing, crushing chest pain. You fall into the emergency room always. Because if you do, you'll have a cardiogram and a cardiologist and people put IVs in you and take care of you. But if you fall out, people walk over you on the way to their car. Because in fact, the acute care facility, as we have designed it in this country, and in most of the developed world, but not as dramatically as here, is in fact an isolated thing with their own budget, their own system of care, and the reimbursement system, Medicare, as you well know, Part A, deals with this as a very isolated thing. When I was growing up, I went to Columbia Medical School, you never set foot outside the acute care hospital in training. You just didn't do it. Clearly, there has to be much better coordination between the care in the acute care facility and the care outside in the community. You hinted at something which I just applaud, which is that the incentives in the system are perverse. So the incentives in the system of acute care facilities are to admit patients. And that's why in acute care facilities, we now have the, you know, uh, the uh, RAC program and the systems in order to look at whether or not Medicare should pay for somebody who is acutely ill. You have emergency room doctors, not trying to be too cynical, who may be employees of the hospital, who therefore may have incentives to admit people to the hospital. They're worried about malpractice. They don't want to send somebody home because if they send somebody home, maybe they'll get sued. If they admit them, they're not going to get sued. So all the incentives are perverse. We need a much better way of dealing with people, particularly older people, so that we have person-specific, not site-specific care. Dr. Steele, you are collecting data on, on assessments of older adults. Are you also at the same time collecting data on responses to the needs that come out of those assessments and therefore outcomes data? And if so, is there any discussion of how these data will fit within healthcare reform? When you collect the data, you determine that people are not getting a certain kind of care. The example, for example, being the people in nursing homes who did not even get an aspirin tablet and they needed palliative care, clearly. And we present that, and then we, in fact, say, by the way, aren't we going to do something about this? And because of that, I think we do improve quality. And over time, particularly in a collage study, we could see people over time. I respectfully, I have a bias because I was a professor of medicine in Boston at Boston University, but the Framingham Heart Study, which was actually connected to Boston University, is probably the most famous study in the world. And the Framingham Heart Study <coughs> began to collect data serially on people over an extended period of time. It started decades ago. And that's how we began to find out that people who are older have hypertension, and by the way, they have more strokes. And then we began to find out that if we, in fact, treated that hypertension, by the way, they had fewer strokes. So in answer to your question, the answer is yes collage kind of concept will in fact allow you to look at quality, 
you'll be able to compare yourself to other facilities. And by following people, you'll say, ah, people are getting better, or the quality is not good. With relationship to the resident assessment uh, tool, have you ever used this in staff training to actually have the staff that are administering these do them on themselves and each other and share the results with the purpose of understanding the global nature of what we're asking of the persons that we are collecting that data from? Yes, I have never asked them to do that. Maybe John or Brent could tell me that there are places that have done that. I think the resident assessment instrument, as used now in skilled nursing facilities, my cynical side is about to come out, so I should warn you in advance, you see, is often done by people who fill it out for the purpose of just filling it out. And regrettably, I think some of the value of it is not what it might be, because, in fact, they do it because they get paid to do it, they have to do it, etc. But, in fact, if they understood better from the educational process that you alluded to, the value of doing it, they might be more sensitive to asking the questions properly and being able to follow up properly. And I applaud the idea. There are a lot of ways of doing that. But in fact, we do need to look at the data and say, what does it really mean for this person in this bed at this moment? I agree with you, absolutely. I almost hesitated to ask this question, but we currently have a bill in Congress, the new health care program, and I was wondering if you would be willing to comment on that? Well, I haven't seen the bill, which is, I think, 4,000 pages or so, the one that was just passed two days ago. Um, I have a very good eyesight and go very fast, but I haven't managed that one yet. So I guess if you're asking me what I would like, I could answer that. If you ask me what I think of the bill, I'm not qualified to answer that. I do think we are an unusual country, having seen so much of the world, we spend 17% of our gross domestic product on health in this country. All of Europe spends about 9%. Canada spends 7 or 8%. And by the way, they all live longer. Now, I grant you there may be reasons why they live longer in some ways. More red wine, I don't know. But I would tell you the time has come, I believe, in my heart of hearts, to fix our healthcare system. The incentives in our healthcare system are perverse. They're just outrageous. I wrote a very cynical editorial for the Royal Society of Medicine. I'm a fellow of the Royal Society of Medicine in London, and, and the editorial is titled, Please Lend Me a Hand, and it goes as follows. Did you know, I hope, oh, I'm gonna insult somebody with this one, here we go. I do this all the time, it's very common. <laughs> Did you know that if you take out cataracts, if you're an ophthalmologist, you get conservatively 12 times per hour what I get for taking care of your mother and father? And by the way, couldn't they be taken out by ophthalmologic technicians just as well? And the answer is, I'm sure they could. But in this country, we became nuts on the subject of paying for procedures. And so we do lots of procedures that are unnecessary. We do, I, I promise you that's true. We do lots of procedures for medical legal liability reasons. I don't know whether you're in the healthcare business personally, but if you look at an x-ray report, just go look at a CAT scan sometime, the report. The CAT scan always hedges. Did you ever notice that? You know, it always hedges. 
well, this is, person's probably normal, but you might want to get an MRI. Now, why do they say that? Well, they say that, one, because they're trying to protect themselves medical legally. They, they, and if you ask them, and I have, I say, well, we don't have the clinical data to make the diagnosis. I understand that, but isn't this really a hedge? It now puts the burden of proof back on the doctor, who's the primary doctor. Primary doctor now goes ahead and orders the MRI because what choice does he or she have? And also, the question, if you really want me to be cynical again, is don't they make money on reading that? So the answer is we pay for procedures disproportionately to comprehensive care. I don't think there's any question about that. So the new bill, I would hope, would alter some of that. I'm curious, you collected those 13 million pieces of data. What are you using that for? What's that tell you? It's a lot of data. The answer is they are used. Uh, Brant Fries is here. He is a master of all that data. He knows every single bit of data in all 13. Just ask him any question. Uh, and maybe he would like to answer that question. Go ahead, Brant. It's 11, by the way. 11. I yeah. apologize. <laughs> uh, no, we're using, we're using those data to uh, take a look at, at longitudinal outcomes in particular to try to understand, for example, where interventions Will matter. So if you address a person with a particular problem, is that someone who you'll get a differential outcome? If you know that that same person with those characteristics is always going to get better, then spending a lot of time working on with them is probably not worthwhile. You have to take care of them. But if you know that there's a differential outcome, that some get better and some don't, then you can really focus on those. So that's an example of the type of research that we're doing. Hearing your comments about longitudinal studies and, and knowing that many of us in this room work with continuing care retirement communities. Are you doing any kind of longitudinal studies on the value or the comparison of home care versus those living in continuing care communities? That's a very good question. I don't know of any study that's really ongoing in this regard exactly. But they are going to be going, I don't think they've been published yet at any rate, but they are going to be going in this kind of direction. And clearly, the issue of continuing care retirement communities is a huge interest of mine because I was on the board of Kendall. And I do believe that many things can be done in that setting, particularly where you have couples and one person is becoming frailer and it becomes a bigger and bigger burden for the other person. John, did you want to say something? So I think the answer is that in the future, you're going to see there'll be certain groups of people who will, in fact, benefit dramatically from continuing care. And by the way, continuing care retirement communities at home may also be something to think about. Even within continuing care retirement communities, though, I advise you that more acute kind of level care will be provided in your facilities in very short order. So... I actually presented this to an administrator of a major medical center. I said, you know, there's no reason you couldn't have an IV at home. Why do you need to be in the hospital for that? And never crossed the person's mind. So it's really striking that many of the things we do within the hospital setting really don't need to be done in the hospital setting. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Kendall Outreach Podcast. For more information, visit the web at kendalloutreach.org or call 610-335-1111.
1200. For Kendall Outreach, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for listening and take good care.